copies of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 28. Uh, hopefully, and I know very well a familiar text uh, to this congregation, but if you'll turn there with me. While you're turning there, would you allow me just a few minutes before the exposition of God's Word to uh, just personally make some comments and maybe in connection with you? Um, I am so grateful for the pastors that are here who have previously served this church. Uh, I have benefited greatly from the Malchuses and um, the, the entire family, and uh, obviously Gerald uh, and in particular, as well as his wife. And um, his father was uh, just an exemplary uh, churchman and minister of the gospel. And, um, and then his, I went to school with one of his sisters, and his other sister uh, was uh, married to a man who I count as my spiritual father uh, in the faith. And uh, so I was connected to this family on many occasions and uh, have benefited greatly. And then Jim Simono and his sweet wife, um, I have I first met them when he was here, and he invited me down to preach. And then we have done a number of things together through the Embers to a Flame Church Revitalization Ministry. And I've also had the privilege to go to his congregation in Montgomery uh, when he was there as well. And so now you've got Nick. What am I going to say about Nick? Um, so Nick, um, Nick says that I have served as a mentor in his life. Nick, at no time did I ever do anything whereby you would have thought it was wise in the first year of your ministry in the south in a southern city to, to um, get into an argument with your congregation about barbecue. <laughs> Son, I love you and you are really smart, but that was stupid, okay? Uh, that just, that's just not smart at all. Nick, uh, I think maybe one of the things I can tell you, not only has God gifted him like your previous pastors, and he is very much like your previous pastors, committed to being faithful to the Word of God, and, um, but probably the thing I can commend him most to you is, like your previous pastors, he married way up, and it's, it's worth calling Nick to get Anna. All right, and so you are blessed uh, by this uh, couple, and I'm grateful for them being here. So, yes, I, was, um, I had a great minister, a privilege to be here when um, Pastor Malchus was here, and then Pastor Simono invited me here, and, um, and then I didn't hear a word from y'all for about 30 years. And uh, so uh, now Nick has invited me back, and it's good to be back with you, and um, good to be in this area. I have family in the area. In fact, I have an uncle and an uh, aunt who, with their, my cousins, just <coughs> lived uh, within a couple of miles of this church. And then I had the, um, and then I lived here in uh, not Charleston, but North Charleston uh, for a couple of years uh, when I was um, in the elementary school, second and third grade. And then we moved back to Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. Um, my dad was in minor league baseball, so we traveled all over the South. Went to 11 schools in 12 years. But this place has always been very dear to me. My dad spent some of his childhood here. Um, I have a, I'll, I'm going to do some name dropping. I have a, an uncle uh, who was a senator for um, about the entire length of the age of this country. Uh, his name was Strom Thurmond. And then I have another uncle who was president over at the Citadel, where I was supposed to go to college but found a way out of it. And that was... Uh, <laughs> And that was General Mark Clark. So I, I love, and I just love the Low Country. This is very precious. We've had the opportunity at Briarwood to be supportive of a couple of church plants here. Uh, one young man that went through our ministry in Charlotte has planted a church over in Mount Pleasant, uh, John Payne, and uh, so it's been a been a great connection for us. And I do deeply appreciate the opportunity <clears throat> to spend these two or three days with you and to see what the Lord's doing and to celebrate with you. Now, before I read the text in front of us, Matthew chapter 28 and verses 16 through 20, I want to tell you why I chose this text. Um, I'm going to expound this text in a different way than maybe you might expect it to be um, preached. I, I chose this text because this is your jubilee. This is your 50th year celebration. 
and that is a great time of celebration. Uh, it's a great and glorious time. In fact, here's a wonderful thing for you to get an uh, answer from your pastor. Jesus preached on the text the very first time in his home church, the synagogue of synagogue, the synagogue of Nazareth, where he preached. <clears throat> he, um, <clears throat> he actually preached from the Jubilee text in the book of Isaiah, but he didn't preach from all of the text. He left out one phrase. So go ask your pastor why he left that one phrase out when he preached there at Nazareth. I thought about preaching on that text, but I decided to go here, and here's my reason. One of the great burdens that I have uh, is that Christ Church today, with all of the pressing challenges, um, stay on mission, on message, and in ministry. As you see the culture, and I deeply appreciate your pastor's uh, congregational prayer, as you see the culture disintegrating, the tendency is to think the role of the church is cultural transformation. Or as you see the church no longer drawing crowds as, as it was the thing to do and place to go. I remember when we moved here and I was in the second grade over on Park Circle living in Calhoun Apartments. My dad and mom, first thing they did was find the church. Park Circle Presbyterian is where we went. And uh, so that was the thing to do. But my family was not at that time walking with the Lord, but it was the thing to do. And as those numbers begin to dissipate, because it's not the thing to do, the tendency is to think, well, the, the mission of the church is church growth. Now, I believe it's very important to maintain Christ's mission of his church. Because whatever your functional mission becomes will eventually define your message. If you think the purpose of the church is growth, and I'm not opposed to it, but if you think it's growth, you'll come up with a pragmatic gospel to fill the seats. If you think that it's cultural transformation, then to get a seat at the table of the cultural elites, you'll start to engage in cultural accommodation. What we need to, if you think it's members are to be successful in life, you come up with a prosperity gospel. If you think it's self-esteem, you come up with a therapy gospel. Whatever your mission becomes will eventually define your message. That's why it's important to stay on mission, on message, and in ministry. The church's mission is very focused. He has the church here for a clear mission. And it's, it's embodied in five texts explicitly at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts chapter 1. And that is make disciples. And the church at the same time has a very comprehensive message. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And when the church stays on its focus mission and preaches a gospel wrapped whole counsel of God. Then it turns out Christians who have a gloriously comprehensive, broad mission, salt of the earth, light of the world, that in all things Christ would have preeminence. But you've got to be fixed on the mission and stay there. And one of the great privileges is to see how that then turns out Christians and growth becomes the consequence, not the mission. And cultural impact becomes a consequence. When his Bible says that Paul turned the world upside down, and that he and, the, he and his team, and they said they turned the world upside down, you've got to understand, Paul didn't go out on the mission trips to turn the world upside down. He went out on the mission trips to turn sinners right side up. And when sinners get turned right side up, their lives change, their marriages change, their families change, their business change, their citizenship, everything changes. They become salt and light, and that's what turns the world upside down, which actually, by the way, becomes right side up. So that is why I read this text. And I want to tell you in advance what I'm going to do. I'm not going to preach on this text. I'm going, to go to a, I'm going to go to a moment in the life of Jesus where he models this text for you. That's the way I want you to th see the text, is how Jesus models this text. 
Now look with me in Matthew chapter 28 and look with me at verse 16. This is, of course, one of the uh, pre-ascension, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. There are, by my count, 13 of them that are mentioned for you in the Bible, and this is one of them. I call it the first general assembly of Christ's church. The church is not very big. It's 11. And he's called them to meet him at the mountain. And he gives his church until he comes back its mission, its message, and its ministries in this text. So here's what he says. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See the duration of this mission. To the end of the age and he returns. Now, when we left Charleston, uh, South Carolina, I was in the third grade uh, at Chicora Elementary School, and we went uh, up to, uh, back to Charlotte, where I was born. And as we arrived back in Charlotte, I went back into the third grade, and my dad and my mom decided to go to a church that was uh, kind of half Presbyterian and half Baptist. Uh, it was a Bapterian church. It's called the Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, the First Alliance Church. And, they, and the number one deal for all of their churches is world missions. That's the deal. We, missions con we had as many missions conferences as um, our pastor thought we ought to have. I can never, I'll always remember the mission conferences and learning how to do faith promise giving. And I remember the card table at the end of the conference up on the platform. The only sanctified use for a card table in the Christian Missionary Alliance Church was to hold the adding machine, which was the computer of that day. The adding machine up there and the treasurer of the World Missions Committee would be up there as we would sing and people would bring forward their faith promise and the preacher would go over and look at the tally at the back and evaluate evaluate it, and then come back usually with this word. That's not enough. Keep singing. And so uh, we would be there until it got to where he thought it ought to be for that year. And every speaker we brought in for our mission conferences, I was convinced, was convinced, convicted that the, our church had never heard the Great Commission preached. Every one of them would come in and preach the Great Commission. Now, uh, uh, Gerald and Jim and Nick have heard what I've heard. Nobody ever remembers your outlines. I remember the outline of this text when I was 13 years old by the preacher that came in. He came in and said, do you know the most important word in this text that I just read for you? Now, what do you think he said was the most important word in that text? And then said, I think it's the most important word in the Bible. What word do you think he picked out of what I just read? Exactly. Go. Go. I remember it to this day. Go is the most important, he said. The most important word in the Bible. You take go out of gospel, you just got spell. You take go out of good, you just got odd. You take go out of God, you just got a D. At 13 years old, I was sitting there, how long can he keep this up? I mean, take go out of Goliath, you got Lyoth. I didn't know how far we were going to go with this. Then I get saved, and then I go to Westminster, and I pay a lot of money to learn Greek, and I find out that actually it's a participle. It's not an imperative. The imperative is make disciples, and three participles that modify it, going, baptizing, and teaching. So you are evangel the ministry of evangelism, the ministry of enfolding as they were baptized and added to the church, the believer in his household, and then equipping or discipleship as you're teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then you've got the model of what Jesus had done with these disciples for three years when they saw him, they worshiped him. So you got upreach, worship, outreach, evangelism, inreach, enfolding, downreach, uh, equipping. So you've got the mission. Make disciples. Make disciples. You've got the message. 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Paul said, I am innocent of the blood of all men because I've declared to you the whole counsel of God. And it's contoured with the gospel. And then you've got four key ministries of worship, evangelism, enfolding, assimilating, and, uh, and then, of course, disciple-making. Now, I'm not going to ask for any raised hands, but I am going to ask you this. Well, I, I would like to ask you this, but I'm not going to. I'm going to ask you, but I'm asking you not to respond. I don't think I should have that liberty as a, as a visiting pastor. But it would be interesting today if I was to ask in this congregation, who here has come to Christ and made a personal commitment to Christ as Lord and Savior and the chief instrument that God used for you to come to Christ is a member of this church. I did that where I was a student pastor in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Our church had grown 400% in two years. When I asked that question, not a hand went up. We had our theology right, but we weren't doing right with our theology. And I was deeply convicted about it. We weren't doing what we called to do in terms of making disciples, going, baptizing, teaching, that they who were falling short of the glory of God would become those who delight in giving glory to God in worship. So one of the things that I did is I look at this, I thought, we are, this church is the body of Christ. And I want to tell you why I'm doing this. I want to celebrate what God has done in the life of this church. God has invested, he gave some as pastors and teachers. He's invested good pastors and teachers. God has invested much in the life of this congregation. And it is a blessing to see what he's doing. And I look forward with great anticipation. But whenever you have a year of Jubilee, there's a warning bell that rings. Now, Pastor, why would you say that? I say that because if you look in your Bible, try the book of Judges, and if you look at church history, the 40 to 80 year mark is a warning sign. Almost every movement starts to go downward, starts to unravel, starts to deconstruct, begins to accommodate first theological aberration, then theological adultery, and then theological apostasy. And it doesn't start with the big doctrines. It starts smaller. That is, that is so, uh, I, I've been a part in leadership, of leadership of institutions that have had to face this. And thankfully, I've seen the Lord bless. And one of the things I am grateful for is not only your past that we can celebrate, but as you move into this warning era, God's given you good leadership. I've met with some, you've met with your staff, I've met with your pastors, and I've met with your elders and your deacons, and I'm grateful for who he's given to you because that's the key is leadership. But what I want you to do is just to hear this. I want you to see we are the body of Christ. Now, guy, I'm a very simple person. So Jesus 2,000 years ago came into this world and he took upon himself a true human body and soul. And he did that to become one of us, to come among us, to take us our place at the cross. As he takes his sin, our sins upon himself in all of his perfected righteousness. This one who was innocent of all six trials the night, of his, uh, uh, the night before his crucifixion stood guilty before the tribunal of God because our sins were upon him. By a man came death, by a man came the resurrection of the dead. So here is the one man who is the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the one who humbled himself not by subtraction but by addition as he took upon himself humanity and humbled himself to the point of death, not a martyr's death, not a model death, but an atoning death. It is this Jesus that then in that body was raised. It is this Jesus in that body that ministered for 40 days. It is Jesus in that body that ascended into heaven, and, it, and there he will be until 
this mission is accomplished. And when all of his people from every tribe and nation have been brought to himself, then the trumpet blows and the voice shouts, and he comes again in that body. In that body, he did the work of redemption. And you and I are part of body number two. His church. In the New Testament, you'll see, you'll see what I think are ten major word pictures of the church. Nine of them you'll find in the Old Testament. Except one. That's this phrase, the body of Christ. We, Christ came in an incarnation. The incarnate body of Christ. He now is present by his spirit in the indwelt body of Christ, his church of which this church is a manifestation of. And we have a mission, and that mission is to make disciples. Dare I put the picture as it came to the early church? Make disciples in Charleston, in South Carolina, in North America, and to the whole world. That's what we've been called to do. And if you want to protect against theological decline, stay on mission. Stay on message and stay in ministry. And let me just show you what that looks like as body number two, looking back at Jesus in body number one. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter five, Mark five. And I'm gonna do this rather rapidly this deserves a lot more treatment than I'm about to give it, but at least I know uh, that you will get the treatment uh, from the expositional ministry of this pulpit as you move forward, as you have in the past, which we do celebrate. Look at Mark chapter 5. This is early in the life, of, this is oh, about midway in the life and ministry of Jesus, his public ministry. And here's what it says in chapter 5, verse 1. They, that's Jesus and the disciples, in a boat... They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerizines. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man. Actually, there were two, but this was clearly the lead guy of the two that Mark has fixed on. There came a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. But he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Notice the repetition. To the sea, in the sea, into the sea. The, re the herdsmen fell the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, now clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from them, from, to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him. But he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord 
has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marched. And I'm sorry, and everyone marveled. Uh, this is a text that's it's repeated in the Gospels, and you can go see it in even more detail. I just love this text that focuses on one of the men and begins to lay out some things for us. So to fulfill the Great Commission, I want you to follow Jesus with the Gospel, and I want to just give you four things to think about from this text. Here's the first thing. Jesus came into this world to do what? He came into this world to save sinners. He said, I did not come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus repeatedly said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Now, we're body number two, and we've been called to seek and to save the lost with ministries of evangelism and discipleship and enfolding and worship. And that's what we've been called to do. Notice that all of that is happening right here. Evangelism, discipleship, changed life, enfolding, being brought in among the people of God, and worship, giving praise to God because of what he has done. So here you see the Great Commission at work. What are some things that you and I can learn? Number one is this. There is no place that Jesus will not go to seek and to save the lost. There is no place. When we moved to Charlotte, I was told, do not cross Independence Boulevard. You have no idea what they're doing over there, son. Maybe you were raised don't go to the other side of the tracks. Well, probably you were told, don't go to North Charleston. That's probably what you were told. There is no place that Jesus will not go. Mark, notice something. We are looking at the northern eastern part of the land promised to Israel, been occupied by a tribe and a half. But this place had been swept first by the Assyrians, then by the Babylonians, then by the Medo-Persians, then by the Greeks. And by that time, this place had become completely Hellenized. Notice the Greek names, not Hebrew names for the cities. Decapolis, Deca, Ten, Polis, cities. Notice Mark can't even bring himself to talk about this place that became known as the Galilee of the Gentiles. This is a place that is totally apostatized. It's a place where the kingdom of darkness and the demons feel comfortable and want to stay. This is a dark place. I mean, what in the world are Jews doing with a herd of pigs. Full apostasy, full abdication has taken place. Rooted into the cities. In fact, Mark can't even bring himself to use the names of the places hardly. He calls it the other side of the sea. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. If Jesus had told the disciples when they got in the boat where they were going... I hear Peter would have probably said, or John or James, somebody would have said, hey, we can't go, Jesus. My mother told me not to go over there. <laughs> That's the other side of the sea. But there's no place that Jesus will not go. No place will you mark off on the islands that surround Charleston. Nor Charleston. Nor South Carolina nor this country, nor the world. We don't mark any place off. There is no place that Jesus will not go to seek and to save the lost. Secondly, there is no power. There is no power that he cannot overcome to seek and to save the lost. I mean, he is going right into the teeth of the kingdom of darkness. And he is demonstrating what he is going to tell them not many days from this. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
There is no power he cannot overcome. One time I was listening to a preacher who I greatly admire, by the way, and he got to the end and he wanted to invite people to Christ. And so he resorted to this statement. He said, well, he said, here's what I want you to know is that I have preached to you the gospel and you've just heard that God has voted for you, but Satan has voted against you. Now is the opportunity for you to respond and break the tie. Now, that may be good psychology, but it is atrocious theology. When God and Satan vote, pardon my North Charleston accent, when God and Satan vote, there ain't no tie. Satan is not the bad God and God the good God. Satan is a usurper. He is a fallen angel, greater than me and how he was created, but not God. And when your Savior, you just celebrated this week of passion, when your Savior went to that cross, he took on hell, he took on hell, death, the grave, and Satan, and he defeated all of his and our enemies. There is no power he cannot overcome. I meet many people. Sometimes it's interesting how we kind of mess up the Bible a little bit practically. What do we do? We, we resist. Have you ever noticed how we, um, well, here's, here's one, how we exalt ourselves and then pray for humility? What you can do, just duck when you do that. Just duck when that one, when that one gets answered. Here's what the Bible really doesn't give humility as a prayer request. It gives it as a life takeaway. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Then he will. See, we exalt ourselves and then pray for humility when we're supposed to humble ourselves. And then he'll exalt us at the right time. Another one that we do is we resist temptation and flee Satan. And the Bible says, no, what do you do with temptation? Flee temptation. What do you do with Satan? Here's what James says. Resist him. He will flee from you. And the reason why, number one, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. No tie. Number two, at the cross, Jesus bound the strong man. Now we go and plunder his house. Jesus came and at the cross did the work of redemption. Now he has given us the power and ability to go and plunder the world, to bring his elect as the treasure that he will bring to the Father from every single tribe and nation. No place we can, will not go and no power can he not overcome to seek and to save the lost. See, we read this and we said they said, well, please don't send us out of the country. Just how about these pigs over here? And Jesus permitted them. And it kind of looks like a nice interplay of southern manners. <laughs> That's not what's happening. You've got to understand Hebrew cosmology here. Rivers and streams were representative of the flowing gospel of life. The sea was the door to the abyss. I have stood there two months from now. I'll be standing there with a group of people every other year. I take them for learning the Bible in the land of the Bible. I'll stand them right there at that sloping cliff. And when those pigs, when Jesus put them, those de demonic spirits in those unclean pigs and sent them over the cliff into the sea, that was a declaration. He is Lord of all as he consigns them to the abyss. And every Hebrew watching it would know it. And that's why they want him out of there. I mean, you'd think all the people when they heard about this, let's show up and do what? Let's show up and have a party. Hey, we got a great itinerant evangelist here. Somebody build a building. Let's start some crusade. No, they're begging him to leave. Why? Now, folks, get this, please. You are in a neo-pagan society now, and it's descending rapidly, and it's coming and is here in Charleston. And it is a culture of insanity, a culture of absurdity, a culture of lethality, and a culture of immorality. And every piece of that is rooted in profit. 
Do you know how much money is made out of the LGBTQAI movement? Do you know how much money is made out of the abortion industry that your pastor just prayed about? Do you know how rooted this culture of insanity, absurdity, this culture of you get corporations, all the all unbelievable declarations that they're making because they know they think and they anticipate the trajectory of the culture and it's going to make them money. And that's exactly what was taking place here. And this Gentile, this Galilee of the Gentiles, they were making money. And Jesus was messing it up. Paul will encounter the same thing at Ephesus. When idolatry goes down, silversmiths go down, idol makers go down, and then comes the riots. He'll experience it at Thessalonia. And if God grants us a revival, the evil empire always strikes back. And one of the ways it does is not only big governments and all the things that I know you study and think about, but big business. You can make a lot of money out of sin. And they're ready for him to get out of there. But there is no place that Jesus will not go. There is no power that he cannot overcome. He has not yet destroyed his enemies. He'll do that at the second coming. He'll destroy and cast into hell sin, death, and Satan. But he has already defeated them. So the Bible says, resist Satan. He will flee from you. So that there is no place we won't go and no power we can't overcome. Thirdly, there is no person that is so lost that he cannot seek and save them. So Church Creek, as you move forward to your next 50 years, go get them. God's elect is out there. Rescue the perishing. Cast the net widely. There's no place you will not go. There's no power that he cannot overcome. And there is no person so lost. So I don't, we don't cross people off. Now, listen, I get, sometimes the Lord will move you from praying for someone to start praying. So I understand that. But we, I just don't cross people off. How many times have the very people that I thought were about to fall into the kingdom never come, and the people that were so opposed, the next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call from one of my good friends that I shared the gospel with, and in my mind, that'll never happen. And he calls and says, hey, Harry, I just came to Jesus, and the first person I wanted to call was you. I, I, I almost had to pick me up off the floor. But that didn't really surprise me because I know where I was. And when God saved me. There is no person so lost that he cannot seek and he cannot save them through the body of Christ. No place we will not go, no power we will not overcome, and no person so lost that he cannot save them. Uh, let me, maybe I can illustrate it this way. I've used this before, but if you'll bear with me, some of you may have heard it. Uh, when we moved back to Charlotte, eventually my dad, like I said, was in minor league baseball, and my, my basic slogan is there's a lot of money left, at, there's a lot of month left at the end of the money in minor league baseball. There's just, there's not, a, so when I turned 16, I, my daddy said to me, we were living 1342 Tarrington Avenue in Charlotte, and he said, son, I've got you a car. I said, what? He said, I got you a car for your birthday. I, I, was, I was dumbfounded. And then he says, before I tell you this, the car you would want in 1963 was a 57 Ford. I mean, a 57 Chevrolet. Next best would be a 57 Ford. So I just picked an argument. So next, next to us would be a 57 Ford. Well, it wasn't a 57 Chevy. He said, I got a 57 Ford. It's out there in the driveway. I ran out the back door, heard the screen door, and I turned, looked, and my face hit the ground. I said, Daddy, I cannot, I cannot drive this car. I, I, he said, son, you're driving it to school. It's eight miles to school. And, and my daddy had a way of saying things. They're in the Bible somewhere. I just don't know where yet. I had not found a uh, poor ride's better than a proud walk. I don't know where that is. But the way he said it, I know it's inerrant, infallible, sufficient truth from the Bible. And he said, by the way, you're going to drop your sisters off uh, that school on the way. So you need to carry them on your back and walk to school. Or you're going to take this car. I said, Daddy, I can't drive this car. Now, you would say, why would I say that? Because it was a 57 Ford. Why did I say that? Because it was pink. <laughs> it was a pink car. 
I said, Daddy, I've got a reputation. I'll be in a fist fight every single day the rest of my uh, two years at East Mecklenburg High School. He said, son, it's not pink. It's coral. <laughs> I said, what? He said, it's not pink. It's coral. Well, I, uh, um, I said, uh, and then he, but then he said, and by the way, I got it at an auction for $75. South Carolina State Highway Patrol had retired this interceptor. Now, interceptor got my attention. And then he lifted, he said, lift up the hood, son. I lifted up the hood, and I looked in there, a 390 with two four barrels. I said, Daddy, I kind of like this coral car. <laughs> now, I was uh, not a Christian, not even close. So I do not recommend what I'm about to say. But um, I would pull up to the stoplight and the Corvettes and the Thunderbirds and the Fitzsimmons Chevys would point at my pink Ford, and they'd laugh at it, and I'd just point. I am a Christian now, so it's only out of humility. I will not give you the number of Corvettes and 57 Chevys I just sucked right up the exhaust pipe <laughs> of that 57 Ford. The world is going to laugh at the gospel. They're going to try to shame you into silence. All you've got to do is lift the hood. It's a power plant. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone who believes, any place, any person, God can save them by the power of the gospel. Let me give you the fourth and final. Thank you for your patience. Here's the fourth and final one. There is no place he will not go to seek and save the lost, no power he cannot overcome as he shows us how to fulfill the Great Commission and there is no person so lost he cannot save them. Here's the last one. Now hold on. There is no person that he has saved that he will not use to seek and to save others. That's you. That's me. There is no person that he has saved that he will not use to seek and save others. Now, Jesus is getting ready to get back in the boat. And, the, and this, this demon-possessed man, now already, discipleship's taking place. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. Things are happening. And they're trying to run Jesus out. Well, this guy says, can I join your church, Jesus? <laughs> can I get in the boat with you? I got a series of sermons. Jesus answers prayer. No. So he makes a prayer request. Jesus says, no. He says, I'll tell you what you can do. You go home, you go to your family, you go to your friends, and you go tell them what great things has been done for you. And that's what he does. There is no person that he has saved that he will not use to see. So you may be a planter, you may be a waterer, you may be a cultivator, but he'll use you. And he'll use you in the proclamation of the gospel. So get in on it. Just get in on it. Get started. I mean, I loved, I was sitting there thinking when Gerald said what he said about how emotional he was when he pointed out the dialogue of worship. And I couldn't help but thinking maybe we could just add one more thing to that. And, I, and that also gets me emotional. That we speak to God, he speaks to us. When we leave here, we'll speak and say how good it was. And when we leave here, we're going to speak for God to others. It's called witness. That God would allow us to tell others where there's life evermore. And it's who. I know whom I have believed. Not when, not that, but I know whom I have believed. He is able to guard what I've entrusted him. You can go tell people that. Okay, would you just give me two minutes to maybe wrap it up this way? I went to Charlotte to plant Christ's covenant. We had 38 people in a modular unit, which is a double-wide trailer with the wheels covered up. And there we started the work, and the ministry started to grow, and this, this really nice lady came in with four boys. And I noticed her husband didn't come with her, and then later, uh, I'd been there a couple of months, and she said, I'm, my husband has left me uh, a number of times. This time, 
I believe for the sake of my sons, I've got to hold them accountable. And, um, and I've got, and would y'all please help me to see if I have grounds for divorce? And I said, well, divorce is never a solution, but it's a divinely designed protection uh, in terms of this pattern of covenant breaking. And so we, we walked her through it, and I said, you know, we're going to shepherd you through this. I love you boys, but I want you to know something. I'm going to go after him. And basically, she told me, well, better men than you've tried. And uh, so I, I went after him. Long story short, his name was Steve, and he came to Christ. Uh, we shared ministry in his life, the OPC Church and, and, my, and, and, and myself, the two pastors, and we worked with him. He started coming in. He would come into the back row and watch what was going on. And one day he came up to me as being that we were discipling him, uh, both the pastor, OPC Church, and myself. And, um, and he came up to me and he said, do you think my wife would have me back? I said, I don't know. You forfeited that. Why don't you court her? And so they did. Long story short, um, he asked her to marry him again. She said yes. I've, I've, had an, I've had a couple of those. One of them was my dad and mom. They were divorced 14 years and uh, came back to Christ, and I married them. How'd you like to do that? <laughs> dad, would you take mom to be your wife? <laughs> I, I really didn't know any other way to do it. And uh, so, um, and so, we got, so we, we're in this rented now by this time we're in this gymnasium and it's rented we've got these chairs that we call the widow makers if you got to a certain poundage there's a good possibility that chair is going to legs are going to go out I mean I've watched people dis. I thought at first they were being slain in the spirit it was just it was just the chairs were giving now and I said well y'all want us to rent a church building because Steve was in the big upper echelon of the financial industry of Charlotte, and there was going to be some, you know, CEOs and COOs and CFOs and maybe some UFOs. They were all going to be there. And he said, no, no, we worship here. We're going to get married here. So we did. The four boys were there like stair steps. Uh, they confessed that Christ is Lord and Savior. I remarried them. And a guy said, he stopped me. And, a guy, and then on Monday, I got this phone call, and there was a guy named Harvey. And Harvey said, you know, I work with Steve. And I work with, um, uh, I work with uh, Steve, and he was telling me about Jesus. And then I came to his remarriage. He said, you know, I've never seen weddings like that before. He said, could I talk to you about that? I said, sure. Uh, meet me at the uh, Chateau restaurant. And I met him at the Chateau restaurant. I asked him two questions. I pulled out a napkin. I wrote down three things. Our situation, God's solution, and your salvation. I walked him through it. I then said, do you understand? He said, yes. I said, is there any reason why you shouldn't receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? He said, no. And Harvey prayed with me, gave his life to Christ, took the napkin, stuck it in his Bible. He went back to his apartment where he had a relationship with the lady we used to call living without the benefit of clergy. And he uh, said to her, I'm a Christian. you got to move out. She said, I'm not moving out. You move out. What are you, in some kind of cult? And so the next Sunday, she shows up to see about the cult. That was, and it kind of looked like it with the chairs and meeting in a gymnasium. You know, later on, she told me, she said, I thought you'd bring out a box of snakes at any moment. I, did, I didn't know what was going to happen. Red hair, red face, sitting there mad the whole time. She left, and then I stopped her, and I turned her over to Gerald's sister, Miriam. And she led Beth to Christ. And then Harvey and Beth got married. And all the same UFOs were back again. <laughs> and they gave their testimony. And afterwards, I get a phone call from a guy named Dan. And Dan says, you know, I work with Steve, and I work with Harvey, and they've been telling me about Jesus. And, they, and I went to that wedding. I've never seen weddings like that before. And she can I can I talk to I, I, I just want to ask you about it. And I said, sure, meet me at the Chateau restaurant. So we met at the Chateau restaurant. I asked two questions, pulled out a napkin, wrote down three things. Do you understand? Yeah, any reason why you no? And so Dan gave his life to Christ. His wife had left him, but the Lord brought into his life this wonderful Christian young lady, and I married them. And then all the people are back for the weddings again. And I finished. Dan and Chris got married. And then um, I got a phone call from a guy named Joe. And Joe said to me, he said, you know, I work with Dan and Steve and Harvey. And they've been telling me about Jesus. And I went to those weddings. I've never seen weddings like that before. Can I talk to you about it? I said, sure. Meet me at the Chateau restaurant. <laughs> Bring a napkin. I think they're out. And so, uh, so we, I pulled the napkin out and shared. And he came to Christ. 
And then Joe went home, and Betty came to the church, and she came to Christ. Now, I could continue with that, uh, I call it the daisy chain, but uh, I'll stop right there. Uh, I, just want, I, I just hope you're getting the picture. There's no one that he saved that he will not use to seek and save others. Steve became the vice president of RTS Charlotte. His wife became the superintendent of Covenant Day School. Uh, Dan and Chris helped us with our first church plant and brought in the adoption agencies. Harvey became an elder, and he and his wife oversaw our evangelism explosion weekly ministry. Joe became president of the men of the covenant, and his wife became president of the women of the church. Marnie and Steve, the four boys, one is the youngest tenured professor uh, in, at Princeton. The other one is president of our denominations college. His name is Derek Halverson. There's no one that the Lord has saved that he will not use to seek and save others. Jesus will come back to this place that is running him out. Go read it in the next chapter. Next time he comes, he's going to have to repeat the miracle of the fishes and loaves because over 5,000, just counting the men, have come to hear him. What changed in the months from when he left to when he came back? They ran him out, and now they can't help but get to him. I think one of the things that changed is the man that got converted became no longer a mission field, but a missionary. And God used him. And now many came to hear him. And God will use you. And God will use Church Creek. Forget the 50-day to year mark. This can be the greatest time of the kingdom expanding in your life and in your ministry. God, thank you for the moments to be with these, my friends. Thank you for the privilege to be in your word. I pray that you would guide and direct this congregation, fill them with your spirit. And I pray that, Father, if there's anyone here today that did not know how much they needed Jesus and how much Jesus, who didn't need them, loved them, so that now they will come to him who first loved them. Today, if you would like to come to Christ, seek out the elders of this church. Seek out the pastor of this church. Seek me out and commit your life to Jesus. Father, I pray that you would bring the truth of the gospel home and you would plant it in our hearts. And then from our hearts through our mouths, may the world hear your voice. And God, please use this congregation, thanking you for what you've done. But may the greater and best days and later reigns yet be to come. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.